I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Anne Claire Carnahan, guest hosting today's episode. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Climate change is a big challenge, and it will take out-of-the-box collaborative solutions. In honor of Earth Day, we're diving deep on how the AWS cloud can help customers achieve their sustainability goals, whether that's achieving carbon neutrality, using more renewable energy, or even creating new business ventures. With the cloud, customers have opportunities to reduce carbon emissions from their IT infrastructure, in addition to dreaming up entirely new businesses that support a more sustainable future, not only for them, but also for their customers. To share how we can help customers achieve these goals, I spoke with Ken Haig, Senior Manager for Public Policy in the Asia-Pacific region at Amazon Web Services. Where does the Asia-Pacific region stand in terms of cloud adoption generally? The Asia-Pacific region is a really interesting place. It's a challenging place to be working in because it has both opportunities as well as challenges that we're looking at. On the one hand, you have really hyper-urban, extremely sophisticated markets where both public and private sector customers are rapidly seizing opportunities to move their operations to the cloud. So you can think about markets like Japan and Korea, for example, which both committed to net zero carbon goals by 2050. China in 2060. Australia, we see a lot of effort there, as well as in Singapore, which in recent years has adopted all sorts of creative and innovative strategies for scaling clean energy and environmentally responsible approaches, despite land and population constraints there. Um, So on the one hand, you've got those kinds of countries. On the other hand, you've got rapidly developing but still very fossil fuel dependent economies where we're working with policymakers to increase consumer options for ourselves, but also for our customers around renewable energy and more aggressive climate action more generally. And this is exciting because we think that the cloud has a lot of opportunity to address both ends of the challenges that we're facing in the region. Within all of this diversity across the entire region, is sustainability a top concern across the board? Yeah, definitely. So there's two ways of thinking about sustainability here, right? So one is how AWS customers benefit from our sustainability efforts when they're running their workloads in the cloud. So we might think of that as sustainability of the cloud. And the other is how our partners and our customers are using our cloud technology to drive sustainable outcomes in their own fields, in their own businesses. And so that's sustainability in the cloud. When we say sustainability of the cloud, we mean organizations can reduce their carbon footprint by migrating to the cloud. Our data centers are incredibly green in that sense. In 2019, there was a cross-industry study that was conducted in the U.S. And so this was surveys across enterprise customers from a whole bunch of different industries. And what they found in the survey, so this was conducted by 451 Research, which is a part of S&P Global Market Intelligence, they found that by moving from the on-premises data center, the average enterprise business could expect to see a 3.6 times increase in energy efficiency by a move to the AWS cloud. And when you combine that with our 100% renewable energy commitment, so we are on a path to reaching 100% renewable energy across all of our operations by 2025, that results in a average 88% carbon reduction potential for enterprise businesses moving their operations from on-premises into the cloud. We're actually in the process of doing a follow-up survey here in the Asia-Pacific region, 
We've interviewed more than 500 enterprise businesses from across five different countries in the region. And we're seeing even better results in terms of increase in energy efficiency, as well as the resulting carbon reduction potential that enterprise customers can expect to see from a move to the cloud in the Asia-Pacific region. In addition to that, we have a whole bunch of tools and really innovative case studies in how customers are starting to use our cloud tools and infrastructure. So this is what I mean by sustainability in the cloud to drive innovation in their own fields and businesses. And so maybe if I just give you a couple of examples. So one example is Mando, a leading automotive parts manufacturer in Korea who are using the AWS cloud to help address anxieties that customers have about adopting hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So they're using the cloud to provide new mobility services and personalized real-time information so that drivers can identify the most efficient routes to existing fueling stations. Another example is Vector in New Zealand. So this is one of New Zealand's largest power companies, and they have operations in New Zealand as well as Australia. They're working with AWS to jointly develop a new energy platform. And so essentially what this is, is it takes the billions of meter reads that they get from smart meters across all of their infrastructure, and they're using big data analytics to identify opportunities for efficiencies across the network. And this includes developing and delivering more affordable, reliable, and cleaner energy options that are personalized for their customers based on their energy consumption habits. There's just a ton of opportunity of leveraging the power of the cloud to drive sustainability across all of our customers' businesses and create new business models even that will help to drive sustainable outcomes for even more of their customers. Talk us through how we can measure sustainability of the cloud. How are we thinking about our own carbon footprint in our data centers and what are we doing? We started to touch on renewable energy. The cleanest energy is that which we don't have to use in the first place. So the first thing we do is maximize efficiency of our operations from the server level all the way up to the facility level. We're now incorporating use of the Graviton 2 processor. That's AWS's most efficient processor to date. It provides two to three and a half times better performance than any other processor that we've ever used. So this is exciting. Literally from the processor level up, we're incorporating more efficient equipment. We then run our servers at the highest utilization levels possible. We can leverage our ability to share and dynamically allocate resources across customers' workloads on the cloud to achieve even greater efficiencies. And then at the facility level, we're specifically designing our data centers to use the most energy efficient cooling methods possible, as well as electrical infrastructure that results in lower energy losses. After that, whatever energy that we still need to use, we have pledged to do so by using 100% renewable energy. It's not just that we're going out and buying what's available on the grid. Our renewable energy approach is we go out and we purchase new and additional renewable energy. We do this because we want to use our renewable power purchases in such a way as to grow markets for renewable energy for everyone so that we're leaving a wide wake for others to follow. So for AWS, our largest sources of indirect emissions come from constructing our data centers and the manufacturing of our hardware. One example of how our construction and engineering teams are hard at work on this is how we're addressing our embodied carbon using low-carbon concrete. We're only a small part of the global concrete usage that's out there, but we think that we can have an outsized impact and drive industry change by creating demand for more sustainable alternatives. So in the near term, this means doing things like increasing use of replacement materials and cement that we use for our data centers, which we found can reduce our embodied carbon by as much as 25%. 
But we're also evaluating technologies that provide lower carbon concrete, like by Carbon Cure. So this is one of the companies that we invested in as a part of the Climate Pledge Fund last year. And they have a really innovative approach where they're able to take the carbon dioxide that comes from concrete during the production process and inject that back into the concrete itself. So when we're pouring concrete that's using the carbon cure technology, we're literally pouring carbon neutral concrete into the foundations of our data centers. And so that's you know just one example of how we're already starting to address the harder and beyond the direct control emissions that we have in terms of our scope three emissions. Tell us more about our commitment to renewable energy in the region. In the Asia Pacific region, we're on a roll despite challenges. So one of the challenges that I face in my job is that the standard tools that we use for sourcing our renewable energy globally are not yet widely available in the region. So corporate power purchase agreements, for example, as an instrument don't exist in a lot of the countries that we're working. Renewable energy supply is more limited and more expensive in Asia Pacific than it is in other parts of the world. But despite all of that, we have just announced our fifth utility-scale renewable energy project. This was our first project in Singapore. It's a 62 megawatt solar project in Singapore. Singapore is a particularly challenging place because while the government there is very proactive in terms of trying to clean the grid and clean the energy supply, there are just physical limitations on how much renewable energy can be built because of the size of the city-state there. But they're doing really innovative things like building solar panels across rooftops across the country and also using floating solar PV on the reservoirs there. So literally maximizing every opportunity to place solar panels, whether it be on the water or on rooftops. How can the cloud help our customers innovate and reach broader sustainability goals? There was an interesting report that actually just came out. The International Energy Agency, the IEA, One of the most transformative roles that the cloud can play is really to accelerate innovation in research and technology development itself. So if you think about the technologies and there are research and development efforts that would benefit from systematic approach of cloud-enabled machine learning, for example, the opportunities are huge. New approaches to distributed energy management, low-carbon industrial technologies, chemistry for low-carbon aviation fuel. And new nanomaterials, for example, for higher capacity batteries. There's a ton of different applications that I think we're going to start to see more and more AWS customers using the cloud to drive all of this forward-looking innovation that we're going to need across all of society, not just in our own operations, to help reach net zero carbon. Be sure to stay tuned for the forthcoming 451 report on sustainability of the AWS cloud in the Asia Pacific region, which we'll publish soon and building on our conversation with Ken. For sustainability innovators, the Amazon Sustainability Data Initiative, or what we call ASDI, provides access to large data sets and compute power to help them derive insights and design new solutions all using data. ASDI helps sustainability researchers with data, tools, and technical expertise that they need to drive change. Here's Ray with Anna Pinheiro-Privet, a lead for ASDI, discussing why data should be at the center of all sustainability solutions. What is ASDI and why is it a priority for Amazon? What we're trying to do with this program is really understand how we can use the scale and the technology and the infrastructure of Amazon to promote more sustainability and problem solving in the community in terms of sustainability. Our main focus and goal is really on removing barriers 
particularly to analyze and access data in order to generate timely, reliable, and meaningful insights. Three pillars. The first one is the democratization of data. The second one is very focused on bringing computing and analytical capabilities to the community and enable more experimentation in the cloud. And the third component of the program is very focused on knowledge exchange. How do we encourage everybody to learn from each other and recognizing that the cloud and the use of the cloud is not necessarily mainstream for some of the sustainability practitioners out there. So we have different mechanisms in place to really encourage that knowledge to be shared. And what is the value of ASDI? It's really a reflection of our commitment as an organization to climate action and sustainability. Amazon launched and co-founded in September of 2019 the Climate Pledge. And that's really a commitment for Amazon and all the other signatories to decarbonize our business and operations by 2040. 10 years ahead of the proposed goal for the Climate Paris Agreement. So as you can imagine for an organization like Amazon with all the complexity of our business and then the breadth of and depth of, of our business, this will require a lot of innovation. So we see ourselves playing an enablement role as we engage with the broader community and lend our resources and our expertise so that more people can come to the table and address some of these big problems like climate change. So we'll dive into each of the three pillars, but let's first start with sustainability. It's a really broad and nuanced term, and it can mean many different things. How does ASDI think about sustainability? Our focus is, in the first years of the development of this program, has been more on enabling climate action. And because of that, we've been focusing very strongly on building our data catalog related to climate information, historical weather records. We have also a lot of satellite information, but we've been also building the other domains of sustainability. We see sustainability and complexity and interdisciplinary nature of sustainability reflected not only in the private sector, but also the academia, the government, the NGOs. And, and really, we feel like all of these sectors have a unique way to contribute to this solution and we're trying to enable them through data and illegal capabilities. So why data? How does data help address these sustainability challenges and why is it such a powerful tool in creating a more sustainable world for everyone? If we want to progress and enable better solutions, we need to understand, one, where we are. So we need to baseline ourselves, but we also need to track that progress or not. So we need to have data at the core of all of that. One of the big challenges that we've been seeing in the community and that we hear constantly is the fact that we have more data than ever before nowadays, right? But that's not necessarily translating into more insights or easier access to insights for people to make decisions. It's actually quite overwhelming in this space. So one of the roles that we are trying to play here is to understand, okay, let's try to identify with a broader community, what are those key layers of data that are really critical here? And then let's remove some of that repetitive effort that all of these groups around the world are doing, right? Everybody has to go through the same process of identifying those layers of data, then acquiring them, storing them, cleaning them before they can go to the next step of generating knowledge and insights that can really help us do the work we need to do. So let's let Amazon and, in this case, the cloud play that role of removing that first layer of effort. 
this really requires a bit of a change of paradigm as well, as traditionally people had very used to getting the data and bringing their own copy to their own servers or on-premise and then doing the work. And we're trying to discourage that. And we really want to streamline this and make it easier for everybody. We also want to think of like, how do we optimize this data set so that they are easier to use. They can be more easily analyzed by people that have less knowledge of data analytics. How do we make these processes faster, cheaper, and more attainable by many more people? Where does the data come from? We have now petabytes of data in our system that are open and freely available to anybody. We work traditionally with what we call authoritative data sources. And what we mean by that, they are organizations that are basically their, their main mission, their core mission is to deliver data. So examples are, for instance, NOAA and NASA and the Department of Energy and USGS in the US specifically, but we work globally. So other groups like UK Met Office and other groups around the world are also represented in, in the data we have in our catalog. Those data providers, as they bring their data to AWS, they retain complete control and ownership of the data. In other conversations we've had on the podcast previously, we've chatted with customers about how they're using open data to create and share new solutions across the public sector. For ASCI, what does it mean to democratize and give open access to data? And why is it important to provide the cloud resources like compute power alongside the data? Traditionally, the data that supports climate science and climate applications is, it tends to be pretty large, right? When we think about climate projections and historical weather records and things like that. And the reality is that although this data is open and freely available to anybody, in practice is not, right? And traditionally it's been restricted to institutions that have, you know, large compute facilities and large storage. It limits the pace of innovation because the diversity of knowledge and experience that are contributing to solution is limited. So how do we, in a sense, democratize this process of contributing to science solutions and to applied science as well? And we believe that one of the big solutions is by making the data available to anyone out there for complex problems like climate change or sustainability issues that is very cross-domain and interdisciplinary we need to start breaking those barriers of having these data sets in silos. Then the cloud provides an opportunity to do that. Yeah, and another part of the ASDI mission that you mentioned is to bring Amazon's lessons in scale and infrastructure to the community. How are we balancing knowledge sharing from the Amazon side and the AWS side and the freedom for communities to use the data as they see fit? We try to identify what are the users of the data and of the clouds that not only are very knowledgeable and capable and comfortable in the cloud, but also have a great understanding of how to build solutions for sustainability problems, right? And so as we engage with them, we really encourage them to share their knowledge and their lessons learned and when possible, even their code. And we've been experimenting with different models. Like recently we started engaging even with the data providers providing what we call data informational sessions. And this is a way to really bring together the data providers and the data users in a forum where they can talk to each other and ask questions. And believe it or not, this is not something that is traditionally available to people. And we've been proven really valuable. And in 2020, Amazon announced our commitment to helping 29 million people around the world grow their tech skills with free of charge cloud computing skills training by 2025. So you've talked about how giving access to the data 
and the compute is foundational to scaling the impact of ASDI. How are we working with communities to ensure that they have the skills in addition to the data and the resources to make the most out of the data? The focus here is really to engage specifically with the different communities, understand their needs, and then come back to the data and the tools to deliver to them what can support them in that process. But the key question and the key process here is really to start in their problem, understand what they need and walk back to the data and the cloud as a way to serve their needs. AWS customers can translate data to having real-world impact. By collaborating with ASDI, Digital Earth Africa leverages satellite and Earth observation data to create new solutions across the continent. Ray connected with Adam Lewis, Managing Director leading the establishment team at Digital Earth Africa, to learn more about how they're using large data sets to affect change with water management, food security, and more across Africa. What is Digital Earth Africa's mission? The mission for Digital Earth Africa is to is to really bring satellite imagery, which has a massive potential, to Africa. What is Digital Earth Africa's connection to the Amazon Sustainability Data Initiative? It sort of overcomes some really deep traditional problems. It gives an operational storage capacity that's at scale and that can be accessed anywhere. And so that sort of accessible data at scale just enables a whole bunch of things that weren't previously possible. It enables us to bring all the data from Europe and, and put it in a place where anyone in Africa can, can leverage it. These are massive data sets, and so usually they're not accessible because of their size, but the cloud helps make them accessible. Absolutely. And if you look at the way in which people have tried to bring Earth observation data to developing countries in the past, one of the methods is to put a data store in, but then you've got to maintain that. You've got to have the infrastructure, and then it's in a data store and other people can't get to it. So it overcomes that really deep problem. But it also has another really important effect, and that is of setting a model of hosting these analysis-ready satellite data data sets in a way that it is accessible globally. And that's kind of not so obvious, but it's it's almost as important. We're moving to a new paradigm with the satellite operators, European Space Agency, United States Geological Survey, and NASA, produce data to in a form that's called analysis ready, that's consistent. And then the next step is, how's that made consistently available on a global scale? Digital Earth Africa recently collaborated with the World Economic Forum on a report entitled Unlocking the Potential of Earth Observation to Address Africa's Critical Challenges. And in this report, agriculture was one of the main topics that was covered. Can you tell us about some of the findings and how open data can help address agriculture-related challenges across the continent? It's very important when working in technology spaces like this to build some evidence about how impactful it is. And one way to do that is to look at the sort of broad economic and and environmental potential and benefits. And that's what was done in this report, which we worked with the WEF on. And it really highlights that free access to earth observation data can really, across a number of fields, not just agriculture, but also things like regulation of mining and resources development and growing the spatial sector, if it brings information, and even if that information is used only to achieve a few percent of the potential changes that it could achieve, then there's billions of dollars of value in it. So to go to a couple of examples in the report, if you could raise wheat production by 136,000 tonnes in Africa, then that would bring 35 million to the African economy. These things tend to scale up. Slight improvements in the way people plant their crops or that lead to increased productivity or in the reduction in the amount of water they use, then those have 
big impacts. Yeah, these marginal changes can ultimately add up to a huge impact. How is the Earth observation data and the open data sets, is that helping to spur some of these changes? Yeah, we're starting to see um, uptake in, in a range of areas, and some are things like water management. But where they'll really have impact and where we're focusing our next effort is in the sort of food security area. And that's going to be in things like understanding just how much areas are cropped and then moving down the track, bringing farmers better information on what the season's looking like perhaps when they should crop when they should harvest those bits of information there's a number of sort of flagship examples of how earth observation data is is already helping in in africa and a couple that come to mind for me are um, there's a great piece of work happening in ethiopia where the finance industry is actually assessing its risk using earth observation data and ensuring farmers based on that so they're able to make payouts and so forth based on understanding the climate and the earth that comes from earth observation data. So that's a really interesting one because finance is really critical. And another is there's a program called run through the group on earth observations called GeoGLAM, Global Agricultural Monitoring, which looks globally at crops and identifies for countries how are you going? Are you going to look at are you looking at a food shortage and raises early warning flags. Both of those are kind of broad scale. And I think the next level is how do we bring those down to how do we make them available across all of Africa? How do we use higher resolution data to make them better and more ubiquitous services? What we're now doing is in order to make these data sets and information, which are available across the entire continent, impactful at the individual level, we need to make them available in a way that the innovators can actually develop products from the Earth observation data. That's the whole purpose of making data sets publicly accessible, right? So that the, as you called them, innovators, whether they're from the public sector or from the private sector, or even if it's just an individual who is curious, they now have access to that data and they're able to tinker with it and create and dream of new solutions. And these solutions really can have the potential to support economic development, the emerging of a sustainability solutions market with startups and businesses building workflows on top of the data. So you start to get into this a little bit, but do you have any stories that are top of mind, impactful solutions that you've heard of? We've made some huge progress in the last two years, setting up the infrastructure, bringing data to Africa and building the largest open data cube that exists on the planet. We have got use cases in places like Kenya. They're starting to look at how we can improve coffee growth in particular farms using earth observation data. And so there are dozens of people out there, in fact, scores who are now looking at, oh, okay, this data's here. I know what it shows me. How can I connect it through? And we will see that over, I think, within this calendar year, we'll start to have a range of stories coming out about how people are using the platform. We've set up a, a sandbox environment that allows people to analyze and innovate. Anyone can access that. And we've gone from roughly, you know, from less than 10 users of that to about 500, about under 12 months at the moment. So we'll see that really come through. But you're right, there is that broad strategy. Everyone wants to maximize the chances of success that you can have satellite imagery making empowering change and good outcomes from a sustainability, climate and, and economic on all those fronts. And the principle is if we can create opportunities at scale and for a diverse set of potential users, from students through to startups through to large companies, how does Digital Earth Africa collaborate with people on the ground across the continent? 
I think this is one of the things we're very proud of. It seems to be a bit of a differentiator. The whole idea of Digital Earth Africa is that the program's essentially owned and run by people on the ground in Africa. The vision, the mission, the organizational framework being developed by our African stakeholders. And what that takes the form of a governing structure. We have a board, we have a technical advisory from across sectors. So we have academics, we have small business startups, we have quite a few government people in. And those people come from right across the continent, from Tunisia through to Madagascar. So they are shaping and owning the program. And now we're moving into a frame where we also have a set of implementing partners in Africa. They are regional management and resource organizations. Yeah. So how does Australia fit into the picture of working and collaborating across the continent through Digital Earth Africa? Right. Australia really pioneered the methods for exploiting satellite imagery at scale in the ways we're talking about. And that established something called Digital Earth Australia. And then the conversation became, well, would that be useful elsewhere in the world? A lot of small data cubes have been set up around the world, but that technology was seen as particularly relevant to Africa by African stakeholders. So Australia's role is this establishment phase to foster the development of Digital Earth Africa. And we're now two-thirds of the way through that process. From the very start, though, we've designed it as a program that is about what is necessary for Africa and what is necessary for it to sustain. So our success criteria are not, do we do something good for three or four years? Our success criteria is, does it continue beyond that? What do you think will come from large satellite open data sets? There's a vast amount of data in these data sets. It's hard to see how globally we can tackle challenges of climate change and sustainability without every piece of information we have. And if we can set these data sets up well, make them openly available in a form that's ready to use with the right sorts of infrastructure, these things can enable the data to be exploited. And it's not going to be success through a few government agencies exploiting it, pretty much we have to have millions of people exploiting it to have impact at a local and individual level that will build up to global change. So one of the things we're doing with Africa here is actually setting a pattern that I expect will grow to other continents as well. There's a lot of interest in similar things in South America, and there are people working out how to make that a reality. From the Fix This team, we hope you have a happy Earth Day. Individual choices, enterprise-scale change, and continent-wide problem-solving will all add up to a greener future. And as always, a big thank you to our guests, Ken, Anna, and Adam. And thank you for tuning in. If you like today's show, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share. We'll catch you on the next one.